All right, we are going to get going for our next session, just so we can keep things moving along. We're not here until 9.30. Um, the session that we'll talk about right now is LGBTQ, home, uh, human sexuality. Um, I'm going to be pinning in specifically on homosexuality. As you know, LG, lesbian, gay is kind of the first um, building blocks of this entire view of what biblical sexuality is. And so I'm going to portray two views uh, that people, that progressive Christians would perpetuate, that they would believe, and, and the basis upon which, why they would believe it. And that will kind of give us our framework to understand. And so I'm going to, I'm going to portray two views of homosexuality of, from a progressive Christian standpoint, hopefully as accurate as I can, and give three reasons why they fall short and why that is not the clear teaching and testimony of what Scripture teaches and proclaims. For this first view, um, ironically, it kind of goes, it's the opposite of all that Alexander just mentioned when it comes to the regards of the Chicago Statement. Of all that was stated about what we hold true to be as a church, um, to Orthodox Christianity, of what biblical teaching is, um, the, this first view goes against all of that. And so this progressive view would view Scripture as a starting point. Um, one thing that I was entertaining covering that Chicago statement, but there is a statement on it. It talks about the sufficiency of Scripture, and that is the final revelation of God. That upon the closing of the canon, as it is portrayed at the end of Revelation, if anyone is to add or take away from this book, there is curses to be upon them. And so the first view would believe that Scripture is a starting point, but not a final point. That the work of the Holy Spirit continues to work within believers to bring forth new truth. The way to kind of think about it is, in the Old Testament, there was polygamy that was existed among the saints of the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, the teaching gets more clear as to what God's good design is, is actually one man, one woman in, in, in marriage. And so they would say, well, that is, again, the starting point. And as it uh, changed, if you will, through the Testament, it's not really, it was still changing today. So now where we stand and with all the things that happen in our culture and all the things that are going around us, we are now into read that into Scripture and to understand. And so they would say, that, again, that it, Scripture is inspired, but not in the same way how we would understand it is a revelation of God, but it's not black and white. It was cultural bound, doesn't impact us today. And again, it's a starting point, but not an ending point. The ending is to go on forever. Now, I have a quote I like to read from uh, Brandon Robertson, who's a liberal theologian, that I think in his book, Dry Bones and Holy Wars, he says this. He says, I believe that the Holy Spirit is within you and me. It also inspired folks to sit down and write their own stories and experiences of God long ago so that we might wrestle with and learn from their perspectives. These humans, like us, have finite perspectives. They are doing their best to describe the world as they see it and God as they understand God. Sometimes they say crazy stuff that we should disagree with, stuff that doesn't align with how we have come to understand God and the world, and that is okay. And so you can see this perspective, the view of Scripture is very low, and that we are to understand Scripture in light of the world that we live in today. So we must read scripture from our perspective. And there are two things um, that stick out that they would perpetuate, that they would believe. First is, one thing that's dangerous, is they would uh, carry on the, the cry of the Reformation. And the, the cry of the Reformation was reforming and keep reforming. 
And so they would take on that banner and say, we must continue to reform. As time surpasses, as we live our lives, we must understand Scripture and continue to be reforming Scripture in light of the truths that we now understand, the perspective that we hold now today. And so there's two things that they would perpetuate. The first one is that homosexuality didn't exist, was nowhere stated in Scripture until 1946. That it wasn't until a specific version of the English Bible that was written, the, the um, people who gathered the council decided to change a word that was there for all of the thousands of years and make it specifically homosexuality. And so, they say, so this is something that you hear commonly, is that homosexuality didn't exist in the Bible until 1946. And thus, it is not um, a matter of being against it here today. A second thing that they talk about is the understanding of sexuality. That the ancient view of sexuality is not the modern day view of sexuality. And so thus when the Bible talks about it, it's talking about it from a very different place, different, very different perspective than what we do. Um, and so nowadays when we talk about sexuality, we're talking about like desires, we're talking about attractions, we're talking about like the overflowing of the heart and what we're keen and drawn to. When the Bible talks about sexuality, what they're actually talking about is social status and that much of the sexual activity that we see in scripture is not out being out of an overflow of the heart or being a drawn desire to act upon it, but rather is doing is taking place to make a statement. So for example, they would take Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19. And they would say, oh, this isn't the men of the city coming because they desired to sleep with these angels, sleep with these hosts, but rather they are coming to make a statement. They're coming because they want to shame these angels. And so thus them sleeping with them is a way to assert their dominance over them. So sexuality in much of scripture and from this viewpoint would view it as a social status, not as like a desire overflow of it. And thus it can, that's why it's so easily is condemned. Um, They can so easily condemn all these passages in scripture that we'll walk through tonight. Um, the first place I want to look at is Leviticus 18. We'll be flipping here and there at some passages. The major passages are of a contention and talked about and wrestled with. Leviticus 18 is stated as the holiness code. Um, this is kind of what it's referred to, what's understood as God speaking to Moses and declaring what it is that he desires, what he expects of his people and how they are to live. In the first three verses, give us some context. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do, as, oh, and you shall not do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. And so this holiness code, and we'll continue to go into more specific detail of what the uh, God is expecting his people not to participate in. And we can jump down to verse 22 is kind of the major, the pinnacle one, where it says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman it is an abomination. And so we read this entire Leviticus 18 and 19 and 20s, the fullness of the holiness code that's being referenced. But in it, they would say, oh, this is a cultural bound statement. That what is happening here, what the other nations, Canaan and Egypt, is practicing, is they're practicing things, it's a religious cult, or it's a sexual cult, if you will. And so they say, look, it is sacred prostitution that is going on. 
It's incest that is happening and it's exploitation of slaves. And so this view would say, yes, God rightfully condemns all these things and even these homosexual acts, but not because they are, um, they are, they are sinful, they are wrong because it is a part of a cultic practice. It is not a view of a rightful view of marriage of, let's say, one man and one man together, or one woman and one woman together. And so they would condemn these because it is associated with a cultic practice. And so they do not deny the homosexual activity is happening. They would say, yes, it is happening. But it's wrong not because it's homosexual. It's wrong because it is associated with a cult practice, with the nations that God has told his people not to associate with. And then they would take other leaps and bounds um, to continue to give uh, justification for this view. They would look at uh, relationships like Naomi and Ruth. And they would say, look, they took a vow together that we use in our marriages today. The vow of where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. We hear that in our wedding ceremonies. And they say, how can a... Ruth, take this to Naomi in, in faithfulness. And isn't this a reflection of a, a deep level of intimacy, a potential homosexual love towards one another? And another example they would use and run after is Jonathan and David. When David proclaims that Jonathan's faithfulness and friendship to him, and says, you have loved me more and greater than many women, then your love is greater than multiple uh, women I could ever have an experience. And so this first view would take all this in Scripture and perpetuate and say, look, see, like, Homosexuality is fine in the context of one man, one man, or one woman, one woman. But when it's being condemned is in a cultural bound sense that is associated with a cult practice. And so this is our, the first view of kind of like progressive Christianity that is quite common. The second view is a lot more trickier um, to, to play with, to understand, to discern. It's um, the revisionist view. It's a, a revising um, and it's dangerous in that people who hold this view, they would say stuff that we would agree with. They would say that God's word is the final authority. They would say that we should only align ourselves with what God's word says. And so they would say, like, whatever God's word proclaim, we would submit ourselves to. And so this is where it gets tricky. So then they would revisit, revise all these passages, the major ones that we'll walk through, and say, look, what's clearly being condemned is not a homosexual love between one man and one man, or one woman and one woman. There's some sexual perversion that is taking place that is actually problematic, and that is being condemned. And so we'll walk through these passages, and hopefully I can show you to the best of my ability. The most common one, when we think of homosexuality, when we think of the abomination, we think of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. And they would love to point out that 28 times throughout Scripture, the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah are mentioned. All throughout the prophets, it is a point of reference for most of the rest of Scripture, both of the Old Testament and even the New Testament, of the destruction that took place there. And in that 28 times, they would say, look, sexuality, homosexuality, none of that is ever mentioned. Actually, um, Ezekiel 16.49, they would reference that the sins, of uh, the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah is their pride, it's their laziness, it's their gluttony. They failed to take care of the widows or the orphans. They did not offer hospitality. And so they would clearly state that it's not homosexuality that's the problem in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's actually these other sins upon which that is why God judged them. That is why God condemned them.
Again, another passage that we already walked through, Leviticus 18 and 19 and 20, the holiness code, stating that this is not wrong in the sense that it's only wrong because it is a occultic practice. It is being condemned is and what is being condemned is um, verse 27 says for the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so the land became unclean and so what is being inferred as an abomination is the cultic practice of this sexual perversion and that is culturally bound to that time that does not transcend to any other time in scripture but the new testament also doesn't transcend to it being true today. It's still wrong in the sense that if people are taking place of taking practice in cults and there is sexual perversion going on, that is wrong. That is to be condemned still today. But it's not condemning homosexuality, period. Another common passage that we see is 1 Corinthians 6. First Corinthians six, reading in verse nine, or do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so the a word here that Paul creates, that is understood, is the word arsenikoia, arsenikoitai, arsenikoitai. I haven't taken Greek yet, maybe one day. And this word is pulled from Leviticus. It is, and they would agree with this. And since that, when you look at 1 Corinthians 5, the language here, Paul quotes Leviticus, and these people, I, I need to be clear probably, I'm arguing from one view. I'm not trying to condemn it. I'm just trying to like show you why this is the view that they hold. And I, I'm not pushing back on it. So this isn't my view. But so the, the, this was created, this word, the arson, a man in a koitai, and like sexual activity, being in bed, uh, is a word that Paul creates and is reflective of the active, the man who is active in um, sexual activity. And then the other word that is also here is malakoi, which is referring to the receiver. And so this view would then believe, would say, oh, if you continue to read your Bible, you get the full context of what's taking place. So I stopped reading in verse um, 11. If you keep reading down to verse 12, it says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And, and God raised the uh, and God raised the Lord. God raised the Lord, and will ra- also raise up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. So this view would say Paul is rightfully condemning a wrongful act, and that wrongful act is not homosexual love of one man, one man, or one woman, one woman, but rather it is a cult prostitution. It, this is a letter written to Corinthian. Corinth was a port city that had many temples, and 
as we know, for those of us who read Corinthians, there are a lot of crazy things going on. Corinthians is very wicked in their practices, even inside the church. And so this is a port city where all these temples, and they, um, some historians would say there are up to a thousand boy prostitutes in these temples. And so it was a common act for people who lived in Corinthian to go to these, to these temples and to sleep with boys. And so when Paul was talking about the active, condemning the active person sleeping with another person and then the passive person, he's referring to the man who is partaking in cult practice, and he's talking about the boy who is also partaking in it. So what Paul is here condemning is, again, is pedophilia, essentially. That is what Paul is referring to. That is what Paul is talking about. If you would just read the rest of the scripture, read the full context. That's why Paul goes on to say, that's why you shouldn't conjoin your body to a prostitute. And thus in rightfully condemning pedophilia. Another place that this word, uh, arsenokoitai, is used is 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1, Paul pairs sins together that he is condemning. He says, verse 9, it says, Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the, for the lawless and disobedient. He pairs those. For the ungodly and sinners, he pairs those. And then he moves to three. For the unholy and, oh, two more. Unholy and profane. Then he moves to three that he's pairing. For those who strike their father, those who strike their mother, and for murderers, he pairs those three sins together as condemning. Then he pairs these next three, says the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality and enslavers. And so Paul, uh, so that they would hold, why is Paul pairing homosexuality, sexual immoral with enslavers? And it's like, well, the same thing is taking place. Paul is not condemning a homosexuality love or lesbian love. He is condemning a pedophilia practice. That the enslavers are those who would steal boys from their homes or from foreign nations and force them into work, into temples. And so that is what Paul is rightfully condemning here, is, is what they would hold. And then the last one, um, the main one, would be Romans 1, that I'm sure most of us know well. Um, and again, it's just, the, it would say, just read your Bibles. Read, read your Bibles. Know the context. You'll see clearly that it's not God condemning a one-man, one-man relationship or a woman, one-woman, one-woman relationship, but rather it is a pedophilia, it is a, a, a wrong practice that must be put to an end. Uh, Romans 1, uh, we have a section here. Um, we'll, read, we'll read from verse 24. It says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship, and serve the Creator rather than the Creator, creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And so this unnatural that's referred to for the women would be essentially a, what's being condemned is not a love for another woman, but an unnatural would be a, any kind of sexual activity that cannot procreate. And we'll just leave that. Whether it's uncleanliness or the sexual act, what is unnatural is not, again, a love for the same sex. What's unnatural is just a wrong practice of sex, if you will. 
And when it talks about uh, for the men, it says men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves to do penalty for their error. What is being referred to is it being culturally unacceptable. That that is what is shameless about it. It's because the culture would say that this is wrong, this is a wrong practice, and thus that is what is shameless. And so they would say that actually the context of Romans 1 verses 18 to 32 is condemning not the homosexual act per se, but actually it's condemning idolatry. It's condemning cult practice once again. And thus it should be rightfully condemned. That, and this is where it's tricky because as Christians, we would hear that and we would agree with that. We would actually agree with all these interpretations of the passage in the sense of what's being condemned should be rightfully condemned. However, we don't just stop there where um, people who want this revisionist view holds. Um, we continue to understand the full context of what Scripture is teaching and portraying. And so this is where the view of the first um, will assert that there is one thing that's also unique about this is that people who hold this view will agree with, let's say, us of orthodoxy and say, in the sense that there is no evidence for a rightful homosexual love or relationship or marriage. And they would agree with that. They would say, Scripture nowhere. And, it, and where the first view would go and say, look at David and Jonathan. Look at Naomi and Ruth. Th this view would not do that. They would not overreach. They would not try to insert anything into Scripture to that extent. They would say, no, Scripture clearly does not portray in, in a positive light a homosexual couple. However, in no way, shape, or form condemns it. And since that the format that God has established of what marriage ought to be, monogamy between, one, between only one, like two people, is the extended transcendent truth for people who are also in a homosexual marriage. Since that one man, one man can rightfully be married and actually glorify God. And likewise, one woman, one woman can be married and glorify God as well. So that's the two major views of what you'll often run into, what you'll encounter, people that hold to it. And then quickly, three reasons why they fall short. The first one is biblical authority. Um, we have good reason to trust the canon of Scripture that we all hold to here today. As to why God has brought these books together, who it is that has authored them, and how they have come into the canon. And we also have good authority, as um, Alexander just closed in Hebrews 1, that there is no more continual revelation, that the Lord has spoken once and for all, and all of it is retained within um, His book. And we worship a God who is a God of clarity. He does not leave His followers, or He does not leave His, his sheep to be confused or to be lost. He speaks very clearly and boldly into His created order, into His good design. And this is where the Holy Spirit is not a helper for us to continue to digest and to bring more and more truth into existence. But rather, the Holy Spirit is an assistant, a helper to guide us into the truth that has already been revealed. For us to greater understand, for us to greater seek it and to know it and to love it and thus and to live it. And not a continual... And so the overwhelming practice of scripture and what scripture testifies to is a positive view of marriage that is one man and one woman together that is that is genesis 2 god created adam and he created him helper eve in marriage it is in matthew 19 a lot of people will say why didn't jesus address this if 
you, if someone held one of these views, why didn't Jesus, when he was asked about marriage in Matthew 19, why didn't he make it all clear for us that, oh, there actually can be a same-sex marriage and be fine? And it's like, well, Jesus doesn't address it in Matthew 19 when he's talking about marriage between one man and one woman because he has came to fulfill the law that has already been established. And his law clearly does condemn a practice that is and not just a homosexual practice, any kind of practice, any kind of sexual immorality that's not in the context of one man, one woman. And so Christ doesn't need to address it. It is overwhelmingly um, abundant evidence that in the first century that homosexuality was overwhelmingly condemned by the Jewish people. Now, again, Corinth is a Gentile city. There's, there is like all this practice happening. But for the Jewish rabbis of the first century, there was no dispute as to homosexuality being wrong and problematic. And so Christ doesn't need to address it because his law clearly points to that this is wrong, that this falls short. And again, Ephesians 5, um, some people who hold one of these views, they like to argue when two become one, is that a... Is someone knocking on the door? Okay, sorry. <laughs> when two become one, is that just a sexual union? Like, why can't like two men do that? Or why can't two women do that? And so I know clearly the teaching of... Genesis of all the Old Testament, of the New Testament, of Christ, of Paul, is that the design for human sexuality is for us to exist in a union of one man, one woman in the context of marriage as a monogamous relationship. And so there is um, no other pattern established in Scripture. There's no pattern of women living together and having a family or men living together having a family or the pattern, the clear, abundant teaching of Scripture is that it is marriage is this, man and a woman. And it's funny because people who argue these views, again, they're not arguing saying homosexuality is fine. They're saying homosexuality in the context of marriage is fine. But they, get, they always draw the conclusion of it must be monogamous. But it's like, well, where do you get that from? And it's like, oh, the abundant teacher, teaching of Scripture is marriage is monogamous. But then yet they don't, they want to cut out the part where it says, oh, it must be one man, one woman. Like, yeah, we'll take the monogamy, but not the, it must be two genders and two genders alone. And so that's the first, is the biblical authority of Scripture and the consistent teaching of Scripture is that this is what God's good design is. The second argument and why these views fall short is nature. Take, take away everything I, I told you. And if I was to tell you that God's design for mankind is to be fruitful and multiply. You can put any two guys on an island, and the human race is not going to continue. You put any two, any two women on an island, the human race will not continue. The only way for us to be obedient to what God has created us to do and give us the nature and design to do, and quite literally our sexual organs, is in the context of a man and a woman. This is nature testifies to the truth of God's word. And in Romans 1, where it says, this is God's judgment on the people. It says he is giving them over to their lust, to their desires. Their natures are being subverted. They're being corrupted. And they are desiring things that are in not alignment with the nature of how God has not only created them, but also given them in their function, if you will. And the, um, so the, yeah, sexual organs reflect this, Genesis 9, the procreation. And the, the third as to why these views fall so short is we can look at the fruit of them. 
We are eight years removed from Ober Obergefell. And I, I remember arguing with friends in high school of they're saying, oh, it doesn't matter what two consenting adults do in the context of their bedroom and private. And now, again, it's, we start with LG because BTQI plus. There, there's, we have not, we haven't reached the fullness of what human wickedness and perversion can do. Um, and so as we see in Leviticus, as we see in other places in scripture of pedophilia being abundant, of bestiality, of polygamy coming back. There, there's still much that we that the, the plus sign stands for that I fear we will encounter. And so thus the fruit of, oh, this is fine, this is acceptable, we can permit this, has now led us to we have children doing unreversible surgeries, going on medicine, going on hormones that will completely ruin their entire bodies and their entire lives. And so thus, as Christians, um, many Christians are now taking a stand because they're saying, you can do whatever you want, but leave my children alone or leave the children alone. And that, that's not, it's a good stand. We should fight for our children, but we must hold the standard upon which God has clearly revealed in scripture. And his standard is sexual activity only belongs in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. And anything other than that is Undermining it is a sexual perversion. And again, we see that there is no end to the unnatural bent of the human heart of sexual perversion. And that is what should concern us. That's, and so that's we should take our stand upon what God has clearly revealed in his word and trust it, have faith in it, and know that it is good and pleasing and worships and glorifies him. So will you pray for me? Pray with me. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you just so clearly show from the beginning to the end, God, what your good design is for us um, in sexuality, oh God. Lord, we recognize that all of us have our own temptations. All of us have our own struggles and troubles, oh God. And so, Father, we pray for a heart posture that greater surrenders ourselves to you, Lord. Father, we want to be made in your image, be new creations, God. We want to bring every word, every thought, every desire in alignment with your word. And so we know apart from your Holy Spirit, this will never be possible. It can never take place. And so, Lord, we ask for you to be merciful to us, to pour yourself out upon us, O God, and to make us more and more into your image and into your creation, O Lord, so that we may truly worship you and glorify you and live out how you have made us to be, O God, and following the good design of Scripture. So thank you, Lord, for the clarity upon which you have spoken. Give us faith to believe it and give us courage to proclaim it, O God especially nowadays in a culture that is so anti-biblical, that is so against you, O oh God. And help us, O oh Lord, to be able to articulate well what Scripture teaches, Lord, and to be able to witness to those who disagree with it or hold false views, O oh God. Um, thank you. Um, it's your holy name. I ask and pray all these things. Amen.